TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. HBR presents. Hi, this is After Hours. I'm Rowie. And I'm Mihir. So here we are. It's just you and me. I know. They got fed up with us. I man. know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is great. We're going to just soldier on with just the two of us, Rowie. Absolutely. It'll be fun. We both had little graduation events in our lives, which is wonderful. Yeah. Our kids all growing up and heading off to new places or the same place, but different pieces of that place. It's exciting. Yeah. I found it kind of remarkable how, in my case, it wasn't a big graduation, but it's still easy to get choked up with these kinds of moments. (laughs) It really is. So for one of my kids who graduated from high school, it was a big one. Yeah, that's a big one. That's the real deal. It it was expected. It wasn't a surprise that he graduated, but nevertheless, it marks a particular moment. Mm -hmm. But speaking of getting choked up, yeah, like I was just crying at everything. (laughs) Like everything feels so emotional and raw in a way that felt good. I feel like maybe we haven't been crying enough. I don't know where your moments were, but this used to happen to me on airplanes. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's something about watching a movie on a plane and totally. it does not matter what the movie is. I think I watched Independence Day 4, like ID 4. <laughs> There's that speech, I think by Bill Pullman or something. Pullman, that yeah. I, yeah, yeah, and yeah, he's totally. like, you know, we're going to fight back and this is a great country. And I'm like <laughs> on a plane crying. It's ridiculous. Totally. And I hadn't pegged you as an airplane crier, but I am totally an airplane crier. Well, I think, is there something physiological about that? Or is it just purely like you're shuttling through space in a metal tube and you're like aware of your mortality? I think it's something about taking this moment of space as our own. I have been relying for years on my transatlantic flights for like, that's my space to cry. And there's going to be some moment like I'm watching, you know, it wasn't Independence Day, but it was something stupid like the zombie movie where the love brings the zombie back to life and like a regular human. I'm like, oh my God, it's so sweet. But like this would never happen on the ground, right? Like it's no, just bonkers. No. It's totally bonkers. Okay. So what do we got this week? How about you? I want to talk about Naomi Osaka. Oh, and the French Open, right? I just love everything about this story. I'm not sure why it's captured my imagination so much, but I'd mm-hmm. love to talk through the Naomi Osaka story with you. Yeah. So I thought that I would love to hear your reflections on this new global taxation initiative from the G7, which seems to be making its way toward elements of international governance. Right. So I've been on a media 
blackout from Mahir's thoughts on this because I figure they're <laughs> oh, out there somewhere, but I want to hear them live. That's great. So let's get to it. Yeah, let's just jump right in then. So let's talk about Naomi Osaka. This is really kind of a remarkable set of events over the last week or two. So Naomi Osaka is one of the most important athletes in the world today and remarkably commercially successful, a tennis star by any measure. Mm -hmm. She recently withdrew from the French Open and it's complicated, but the reason was twofold. One is the governing bodies of the tennis industry were insisting that she do press conferences and she didn't want to do those. Mm -hmm. And in her explanation, she made clear that the stress and the pressure of those interviews was too much and she preferred to effectively drop out of what is one of the marquee events of the tennis season. And this has just stirred up an enormous amount of attention. And mm -hmm. I feel like it's like a Rorschach blot thing, right? Where like everybody sees this story and then some parts of it resonates with them. Yeah. What part of it really resonated with you? I mean, there are so many elements, but maybe the easiest way in is just to ask, what is Naomi Osaka's job? Like, is this part of her job? Is this what we should expect of her? Right. And it feels a little bit like the traditional definitions of those jobs are, in some sense, you are working in part for this industry and you have obligations associated with being a public figure in addition to being an athlete. And it seems like she was really pushing against that yeah. in a really interesting way. And, you know, we look at them as athletes, but in fact, it's a whole bundle of activity. Yeah. Part of it is being a public figure. And then, of course, they monetize that public figure in various ways through commercial arrangements. And it seems like she was pushing against that idea of a bundle. And I think some of the reactions to it from different people are like, well, can you push against the bundle? Or is it really a bundle? <laughs> yeah. Like, can you unbundle that set of things? I think the bundling business metaphor is exactly right, which is, could it be that the tennis players or any athletes, frankly, could just say, I just want to play my tennis. I don't need fans. I don't need the media. I just want to play my tennis. And maybe they wouldn't get paid as much if that's what their job was. Because right. maybe it is the bundling of the activities that makes them into these global celebrities and so how much can we pull apart that bundling and still keep what they want out of the activity? Or I think I think the reason why I'm quite sympathetic to her in some ways is she wants to do the fan thing. She wants to do the athlete thing, I think. But she doesn't want the superstructure of this corporate organization telling her what to do. Yeah. So she's not rejecting fans. And quite to the contrary, I think she wants to be there for fans. Yeah, and absolutely. she's a really wonderful public persona. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't want to put it in too dramatic a terms, but I think she's kind of rejecting the corporate structure above her who's writing rules for her. And she's saying, I don't really need the media because guess why? She doesn't because she's a rock star, like on her own. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure part of what she's asking herself is, wait, why am I doing these interviews when I have access to media in my own ways? And why do I need this public stuff when I have a public persona that I manage on my own or with my people? So it seems like a rejection of that whole industry and her ability to monetize and be who she wants to be without them. I think the interesting problem is it's like written in the contracts. Right. And so you know what you're getting into, but then it raises the broader question of like, are these contracts antiquated in some way? Do we need tennis journalists right or has 
Naomi Osaka and many of these other figures, have they just disintermediated the tennis journalism industry on their own and they have their own ways of connecting with their fans through social media and so on? So like maybe the problem is that the contracts themselves are from a different era. And that era is one which believes, I think, that there is something called a sport and that sport needs certain ingredients to succeed. And yes, when you become a rock star, you may not need them as much. Mm -hmm. But I think if I was to defend the idea behind those contracts, it is for the good of the sport yeah. over generations to generate interest, to get young stars to become big stars and to manage the career of big stars for that sport as a whole has to exist with public presentation and with all those other things. Do you believe that or do you think it is an antiquated idea? I kind of think there's something to the idea that we use that structure to make tennis as a professional possibility a real option for people. But then yeah. the second issue is really like, should the organizers of the tournament have found a way to accommodate this global superstar? Because we're asking like, what's Naomi Osaka's job, which is to play tennis plus engage with the structure. But like, isn't the job of the organizers to keep this superstar in the tournament? Right. You know, sometimes when you see these Rorschach ink blots, it's interesting to see how different people react to it, right? The opposing view, if you believe it is important for the industry, is that the French Open's kind of being reasonable. And then there's like a version of this, which is she is somehow to blame because she's not willing to play by those rules. And it even becomes like a snowflakey thing. Like, you know, so there are people who I think look at the yeah. story and then see what they like to see, which is they like to see a young generation who is not willing to be tough and yeah. do the things that we had to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's almost like that's the other version of the story, which is I think there are people who react to it like, why can't she do the press? Like, why can't she do the media? That's the nature of what it means to be an athlete. So it feels like there's a generational push going on here too. And then, I don't know, I think there's a little bit of a gender aspect to this too, right? For sure. How it's really like a rejection of the way careers have to be managed. Mm -hmm. So embedded in this idea that we just articulated about the way the sport is, you have to pay your dues and you have to do these things and this is the way it is. If you want to be ambitious, this is like your life. I think there's like a rejection of that a little bit. Like, no. Yeah. I don't want to do that. And I don't have to be on your treadmill. And my success is not your definition of success. Yeah. And in that sense, it feels really, really broad. It's like generational, it's gendered, it's got a whole bunch of pieces to it. And it's got race built into it too, as well, because tennis is not the most racially diverse sport that we have around. And so I have to wonder whether that's part of the story that's subtext, even if it's not as much text. And there were instances during the French Open where the press was pretty ignorant in the ways they were asking questions yeah. to Naomi Osaka and to other tennis players. And so it's got all of those in it. I think the thing that I really loved about this example or and loved to see it playing out is it felt a little bit like a Harry Megan kind of thing in the following yeah. sense. Yeah. Well, obviously there's mental health at the core of it, which is a hugely important issue. But I felt like people trying to rewrite the rules of the game and like basically saying, I don't like the rules of the game yeah. <laughs> and I want to rewrite the rules and taking big steps, risky steps. But the rules of the game are not just like, oh, this is the way the royal family works or this is the way the tennis works. It feels to me emblematic of something even bigger and larger, which is, wait a second, what are the rules of the game? Mm. Why do I have to try to succeed this way? And that's yeah. only anybody can relate to in a weird way. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the elements of the story where I feel like a deep wellspring of respect for how she handled it, which was that she basically said, 
if you're going to require this and find me and threaten me, then I'm not going to play because I'm going to take care of my mental health first. And so then what I found both kind of shocking and disheartening was how the world kind of descended upon her, which is like, no, no, you have to play and you have to do this. Right. And she was saying like, look, if these are the rules, then I don't want to play right now. I'll play later, which is like, fine. She doesn't yeah. have to play and have to play by those rules. But the amount of criticism and vitriol that came through about like, who do you think you are? And you have to play and you're a star. And But if you play, you have to play by these rules. She's like, look, I'm going to take a break. And it's interesting, right? I mean, think about how costly it is for her. She doesn't have an infinitely long career. Yeah. She's at the peak of her powers. And there's something underneath it all, which is you just have to respect such a young person, take yeah. a really courageous stand. At the same time, there are moments of that story where I'm like, it is part and parcel of what we all sign up for, right? So I don't know, I feel very kind of in some sense conflicted, really so respectful of her and appreciative of her courage in trying to rewrite the rules. But then there's also a part of me that feels like, well, no, the rules do kind of make sense, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, so I, that's why I love this story is because it seems to capture so many things that are going on in the world today. Yeah. And she decided to rewrite her job description. Exactly. That's a great way to put it. You know the lyrics from Holy Grail, that Jay-Z Justin Timberlake song? It's like it's a lament about celebrity, but an acknowledgement that actually this is not the most awful thing that ever happened to me, that I'm a global celebrity. But like it's this tension that's in there, which is like, I want to rewrite the rules I want to be part of the industry, but I want the industry to bend and change. And maybe she's right. Yeah. Well, that's what's so funny about celebrities, right? Which is, mm. in some sense, we obviously exalt them. And then we imagine their life is somehow spectacular or different than ours. But of course, they have those same achings and desires yeah. that we do. And they can find themselves in a position where they want to rewrite the rules. And in fact, it is really wonderful when they make that effort. And that is how like social change happens in a way, right? Like at some writ large level... When celebrities rewrite rules, I was thinking a little bit, it's a weird example, but it occurred to me, which is, I was just thinking about Muhammad Ali. You know, like Muhammad mm -hmm. Ali is one of my most favorite athletes in the world ever. And the costs he suffered because of his decisions at the peak of his powers to do things in a different way and to live his life by his rules, I just think... It's just enormously powerful when people do that. And the amount of social change it can trigger is incredible. Yeah. And in this case, I just feel it's not exactly parallel to that. But, you know, to see people who are willing to stand up to very, very powerful forces, it's really, really inspiring, I think. Well, let me throw one other element of the conversation into our dialogue here, which is the way the tennis world reacted to the withdrawal of Roger Federer, the right. great tennis champion which I think necessarily implicates both the racial question and the gender question. So Roger Federer, who's had some surgeries, clearly used the tournament as a kind of warm-up for the Wimbledon tournament later on and played a few matches, I think three, and then withdrew after winning that third match, saying, I'm listening to my body, my knees hurt. The tournament organizers reacted to his withdrawal in a very different way. Yeah, And so the same tournament organizer who had criticized Naomi Osaka's withdrawal because like you got to play and you got to do this said, and I quote, I have too much respect for Roger to question his decision. <laughs> and I thought, wow, but not enough respect not to question Naomi Osaka's decision. And so because Roger Federer's knees hurt, he withdraws. It's more or less okay. And Naomi Osaka's 
soul and brain kind of hurts, she withdraws and the world kind of descends on her. Mm. And they're not the same story, but isn't there something kind of gross about that? I think that's right. And really gross in a way. Mm -hmm. There's obviously race and gender implicated there. There's also just the way we think about physical health and mental health that's right. implicated in there. Right. I think both players should be able to do exactly what they want to do. Sure, but in a right. way, like Federer is a little more opportunistic in some sense, right? It's a little bit more of an opportunistic thing that happened there, which is he needed the play. Yeah. And then he didn't need it anymore. That's not what happened with Naomi Osaka. But it just seems to, I think, speak to so many divides. I think in particular on mental and physical health. And of course, physical health is paramount for an athlete. Yeah. But let's not kid ourselves. Mental health is just as important, yeah. certainly for athletes and for all of us. And yet somehow, because it's invisible, there's always like some sneaking suspicion of it because of its invisibility, right? Yeah. Which is absurd. Yeah. How do we know you're introverted? How do exactly. we know you've been struggling? <laughs> exactly. Like you seem fine to us. Right. Um, there are so many things about mental health that are hard. One is the taboos. Yeah. But I think there is also this like invisibility and this sneaking suspicion of opportunism, that's behind it, which is so ridiculous in so many ways. Yeah. And so I think one idea that I take from this juxtaposition of the Federer Osaka withdrawals is we've got to make it more acceptable to say, look, I'm not okay. I'm not feeling great. It's about how I'm feeling in my head. It's about how I'm feeling in my soul. And that's got to be just as okay as saying, my knees hurt. I can't play right now. But I think what some people do is when they hear mental health and they hear, like, I'm struggling, they somehow project onto it something they never project onto with physical health. Totally. You know, they kind of say, well, wait a second, you got to deal with that because that's what life is. Yeah. But that is exactly the kind of sentiment and bias which seems to have destroyed so many people's lives, yeah. which is totally wrong. Yeah, totally. And I don't know what your experience was. And we joined HBS at around the same time. But I remember being pulled aside by a senior faculty member when I first was hired who said, here's the deal at Harvard Business School. You can miss class if you're dead. If you're not dead, you're teaching class. Yeah. But it was such a profound difference from how we think about things these days. Like, I would never say that to a younger professor and say, right. it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. We don't care. You show up, you teach, that's that. And I think that this original point you made about generational change, I think it's a real one. Yeah. Even if we wanted to say that to the youngsters these days, it wouldn't fly. Like, that's right. just not how the world is organized anymore. And at the same time, there still is a feeling in me which would never say that, would never really think that, but knows that part of my pride in the institution we belong to is that sentiment does exist somewhere, yeah. which is teaching and showing up and giving it everything is something really core to who we are and what the institution is. Yeah. And that is exactly the tension. Well, anyway, this is far afield from Naomi Osaka. But, but maybe it's the same thing. Maybe actually. it's the same thing. And maybe it's why the story is so trenchant and so interesting and so fascinating. So... We probably won't be talking about tennis anytime soon, but I'm sure that we will have other occasions to think about race and gender and mental health and physical health and generational change. And I think these issues are going to be with every manager in every organization. But you know what's even more interesting than those questions? Could it be a global minimum tax? Taxes. <laughs> what's more interesting than that is taxes. But maybe there's something deep here too. So let's talk about taxes. All right. Very good. So me here. Of all of my friends, 
you're the person, I think, who thinks most about taxes and what they're all about. And the G7 made this big announcement. What do you make of it? Well, you know, it's funny because I have to say, first off, like I love this stuff and I think it's super interesting and super important. But this is like one of those moments, Rawi, when I'm like, why is everyone talking about this? You know, it's kind of <laughs> like the Naomi Osaka thing. Like, what is it that is so capturing about this thing, both because it's being talked at the G7, but it's also in the press. Mm-hmm. It's really become something. Before we get into like what it is, what do you think about it? Why and how it's gained as much attention as it has? I think it's capturing our imagination about some of the transcendent questions that are fueling our politics, which is, are we too unequal? Right. What's fair? Who is owed what by whom? And I think these are foundational questions. And so you're the tax expert, but let me just give you like two little quotes here. One from Oliver Wendell Holmes. I like paying taxes. With them, I buy civilization. Yeah. And the other from Schumpeter, the great economist. The fiscal history of a people is above all an essential part of their general history. So I think it's going very deep into Absolutely. our mutual obligations and where corporations fit into this. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about what actually happened and then yeah. we'll relate it to all those questions because I think you're absolutely right. So what happened literally is there's been an announcement by the G7, which is the rich, large countries, to coordinate on what is called a global minimum tax. And Biden has put this forward And it has been accepted by the rest of the G7 towards a 15% minimum tax on the global profits of corporations. It's an effort to say corporations should pay certain minimal amounts of tax no matter where they operate. What's really going on is throughout Europe in particular, but in other parts of the world in the last five years, there have been a raft of what are called digital services taxes. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the background of this, which is an effort by a number of European countries to tax largely American technology companies, precisely the ones you would think of, with what's called a digital services tax, which is basically like saying, you make money in my country by, for example, selling advertising against Google searches. Mm -hmm. And because you do that, even if you don't have much of a presence or you don't, quote unquote, earn money in my country, you should pay me a bunch of taxes. It's almost basically like a special VAT rate on digital services. So that's what a bunch of countries have been doing. Well, that causes a whole set of issues, basically because they're uncoordinated and it can lead to double taxation. But also America looks at this and says, I don't like any of this because those are my tech companies. So what is the global minimum tax doing? The trade is effectively European countries, you shut down those digital services taxes. And we will hop on the bandwagon of an effort by the OECD, which is a global organization, but not a rulemaking organization, to effectively create this global minimum tax. And that's basically the trade. So there's really two things happening here, right? One is this movement towards maybe trying to go after big companies who sell things in the markets but don't get taxed there. That's like a big theme here, which is maybe the way we should tax people is not on the basis of where income is located, because God knows where that is. But what we do know is where stuff is consumed. So part of what's happening here is that theme. And then the second theme is exactly what you said, which is there is now this idea that corporations are reporting hundreds of billions of dollars in tax havens, and somehow we're not collecting enough taxes on that. So corporate tax is becoming a fairness issue. 
which of course is in this populist moment, a really, really powerful device. Now, is this one of the reasons, do you think, that when the media went to Amazon and Google and Facebook and said, what do you think about all of this global minimum tax? They were like, yeah, sounds all right by us, basically. Right, because they get the trade, which is no digital services taxes, and we'll sign on. But I think the other calculation they're making, which I kind of sign up to, is A, there is a long way to go to make this mm-hmm. a reality, like yep. a long way to go. And we can talk about why that is. But I think part of what they're betting is, which is I can get rid of my digital services tax, which is biting me now. And God knows in five years if they're going to figure out how this thing is going to work, but maybe it'll work. That's the first piece of it. The second piece of it is by the time we figure out how it would work, it might get winnowed down into something that is effectively not going to cost them very much because we already have mechanisms in place, in particular with the 2017 tax reform, to make sure companies pay a minimum tax around the world. And that's one of the criticisms, isn't it? That 15%, it's not like some giant number we're talking about here, right? Well, it depends on who you are, right? So if you're Ireland or Hungary, you might say it is because Mm -hmm. Ireland is coming at this from a 12.5% rate. And if you're China, you may think it is. But it is not a huge number even by US standards, which is currently we kind of have a minimum tax around 12.5%, So the other calculation from US companies is, yeah, whatever. It's maybe a little bit more if they figure it out. And one of the hard things about figuring it out, of which there are many, is it's one thing to say, let's do 15. But the subtlety of this is also, well, 15% of what? Yeah, right. So, you know, the real challenge in tax land is, and the EU has stumbled on this for more than a decade, is, well, we're going to have a common idea of what a base is. Well, what if we don't have the same base? Why wouldn't you have the same base? Well, because we don't really coordinate fiscal policy. So you could have a base that's different than mine. You can allow for certain deductions. I might allow for different deductions. And then all of a sudden you're talking about a 15% of what? And that becomes another piece of the calculation that's really hard. And one of the issues is that like this is a particular feature of our era of globalization and the way it's organized, which is how are we going to tax capital when capital can move so freely and incorporate itself and report profits in places that have lower tax rates. And we have multiple jurisdictions, but in many ways, a kind of global market. And so if I were to say, Mihir, it's complicated to tax capital in an age of globalization, how would you organize it? Well, so to go back to one of the original themes of the conversation, Rawi, is it makes taxing consumption more attractive, right? Which is, you know, underneath it all, capital is very mobile. And so there's two responses to that. One response is lots of coordination, lots of multilateralism to make sure that we can do it. The problem with that is that requires not just a lot, but like almost complete Hmm. cooperation and multilateralism. The other response to it is, well, yeah, it is really mobile and consumption isn't. And maybe we should be thinking about that more or thinking more about progressivity on individuals or progressivity on the gains received by individuals. I mean, the real irony of this debate, Rawi, is there is this rhetoric about right-sizing or making corporations pay their fair share, which is so powerful and is so enticing and people love it. And I get that. The problem, of course, is that we know Mm -hmm. that because capital is so mobile, when you try to tax it, that burden gets shifted. And it gets shifted to the factors that are the least mobile, which can be workers. So the irony of this conversation and the thing that makes me and I think other people who pay attention to these debates a little crazy is we have this language of we got to make corporations pay their fair share. 
But the reality, at least economic evidence, would suggest that, you know, a big chunk of that means workers are going to end up paying it. But you get to score political points by saying corporations got to pay their fair share. You know, we're going to solve this, quote unquote, race to the bottom. But it just feels like, and Rawi, this is unfair, but it feels like trade policy became very populist in the last five years. And there's one answer to that, which is, yeah, it had to because it wasn't working for people. But the other answer to that is, yeah, and you know what? The things that people started to do in the last five years is like going to really be bad for precisely the people who you think you're helping. And I kind of feel like that's happening to tax policy now, you know, which is we're going to pitch it like it's going to be great. And there's going to be tens and hundreds of billions of dollars that are going to be earned by this. Banks have been putting out notes that say that it's going to be trivial for most American corporations. But we're going to somehow score lots of political points. People will feel good about themselves but it doesn't feel like it's going to have a huge impact. This is all conditional on it happening. Which is a long way away, right? So one of the issues here is the G7 has no authority to make any plans for the whole system. The G7 has the authority to make a pronouncement based on what the G7 thinks. And then there's going to be some meeting around June 30th, July 1st of 140 countries online to talk about the proposal. And then there's a big G20 meeting in July when they're going to discuss these things. And so there's a long way to go. And G20 is 20, where it's not everybody. And then, by the way, don't forget, domestic legislatures have to do the lawmaking. So it is intriguing, I think, at a higher level to think about confronting globalization with more coordination, I think can be very powerful. For example, on climate change, it's like a necessary part of what we need to do. Well, there's another part of the story, which is the fact that we're living in an age of giant companies. Yes. So like industrial concentration in a wide variety of industries. And so looking at the data, a lot of the reporting has been like, you know, the first part, we're going to move from where value is created to where the products and services are consumed. And we're thinking like, that's 100 companies or something like that, right? (laughs) And the 15% minimum tax and all of that. And we're looking like it's three dozen companies-ish. So like, it's a small subset of companies, yeah. as you put it. What are we getting out of this in terms of legitimacy? And is it a kind of dishonest, disingenuous way to get legitimacy for the system? But then maybe even more foundationally, like, what does Apple owe us? Right. Because it's designed in California, but made somewhere else. Like, what does Apple owe the American economy? So yeah, I think you're exactly right, Rob. We've Before we do the Apple thing, I mean, you're absolutely right. This has become about bigness. And so mm-hmm. even though the original digital services taxes, they were kind of about bigness. They were like antitrust dressed up as tax policy. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about only the top 100 firms, maybe those with a, like a greater than 10% profit margin. So first off, if we don't like bigness and we want to do things on antitrust, I think we should do things on antitrust. Right. And I think that would be fine. But then let's do that. <laughs> like this is a lot of backdoor kind of anti-bigness going on, which feels a little bit weird. But you're asking the really deep question, which is, what does Apple owe the United States? And how do we make sense of that? Mm -hmm. And Apple will claim, as Tim Cook has done in a Senate Finance Committee hearing, he is the largest U.S. taxpayer by far. Mm -hmm. And on his U.S. profits, he pays like a fair chunk. It just so happened for a long time, the U.S. had a system which made Apple and lots of other companies do crazy things all around the world. And that's kind of now causing this crisis of legitimacy. I love that question of what Apple owes us. I just think we also want to remember that Apple is Apple workers, Apple consumers, Apple shareholders, not Apple. Because when it becomes like about big, bad corporations and what they're doing, 
we're not really looking past that into the people who will bear, mm -hmm. which is like one of the big things we teach in public economics is the people who pay the taxes aren't necessarily the people who bear the burden. Yeah. And that lesson, as opposed to talking about corporations as not paying their fair share, I think is the one that gets lost a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, in a way we're punting on those harder conversations. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's kind of the bummer for me, yeah. which is, we can talk about, like, this is exciting and it's interesting, but like, it's not a real solution and it's not real dollar signs, I don't think. And so yeah. as a consequence, the stuff that would matter isn't getting talked about. Yeah. That's like the hard thing about all of these debates, Rawi, which is, it's not that you want to be supportive of them, but you fear that they're distracting attention. Totally. Right? Totally. totally. You feel like a cranky old man because you're like, yeah, okay, we can do this, but like, think about the things we're not talking about because we're talking about this. And then people yeah. are like, well, no, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And the answer is, yeah, maybe not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't yeah. know. I feel like this is something in life that happens all the no, time. No, I totally agree with that, right? So taxing big corporations is not going to fix the domestic bargain that's breaking. I think that's right. But it will make some people feel better. Right. And that's, I think, the fundamental complicated issue here, which is like, I do want to save globalization from its skeptics. Right. And maybe this will help. And maybe I'm more comfortable than you are with a little bit of saying like, okay, we're going to at least try to hold some people accountable for their fair share. Right. But right. the reality is, and you're totally right, I think, which is like, Taxing Apple differently is not going to change or fix the bargain. Right. Okay, well, so here, I'm really glad we had a chance to talk about this because it's been much on my mind and I knew that you'd have some things to say. And as it turns out, weirdly enough, these things like tax policy that occupy Mihir's mind are really important. <laughs> and this is a nice <laughs> reminder for me that like, actually, Mahir, you know, you're thinking about some important things. They're like foundational questions in a way. Well, so then can we start talking about s'mores again? <laughs> all right, let's get to recommendations. Rawi, what do you got? So Mahir, do your kids live at all in the Marvel universe? You know, they don't, and neither do I. Oh, wow. But so tell me, yeah, what are we missing? I live in the Marvel Universe a little bit with my kids. It's actually super interesting. And yeah. there are all of these interesting spin-off series from the Marvel Universe, especially the Avengers. And so WandaVision was one. And there's a new one that just came out this Wednesday. And it's going to, I think, have six episodes every Wednesday for the next six weeks. It's about a character named Loki. Uh -huh. And the actor who plays Loki in the movies also plays Loki in this television series, Tom Hiddleston, who's oh. a very serious yeah. actor. But this is a new television series. Just started. I watched it on Wednesday with my daughter. There's going to be a new one next week. And it is great. Nice. And interesting and surprising and deals with issues of time travel and timelines huh. and destiny in really sophisticated ways. I think it's going to be super, super oh, fun. So for those fine. of you who have not watched the Loki series yet, I would say you should watch a couple of Marvel movies to get up to speed and then jump into this because there's some really, I think, philosophical and thoughtful questions coming out of this Marvel superhero universe. That is a great recommendation. All right, good. So I got two recommendations because A, there's only two of us, so I think we should give three. And <laughs> young me and Felix, they're so difficult with me when I want to have more than one. And you know that I'm a pushover about this. I'm like, yeah, yeah I'm just going to write it down. Maybe. Yeah. So two quick ones. One is we actually did a little short trip and we went to DC, which is spectacular. 
with children. Yeah. And we absolutely. went to the International Spy Museum. Oh, yeah. Which is wonderful. Yeah. Like almost all the museums in DC are free. This is not a free one. It's a private entity. But there are a couple of spy museums around the world. There's Spyscape in New York and there's the International Spy Museum in DC. Man, they are fun. If you love that stuff and kids love it and they're very interactive they really have kind of stepped up the museum game. Yeah. It's huge. We spent two and a half hours in there and oh, it went by great. so quickly. So I think spy museums of all types, but the two that I just mentioned are really, really good. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is a little book that I got a while ago that I really love. It's called Garner's Quotations. So this is a guy, Dwight Garner, who has produced this tiny little book. You know, you might think of like a quotation book, like who cares? It's like Bartlett's, right? Yeah. But those kinds of quotation books are meant to be exhaustive, like all the quotations in the world. This is like a tiny little book. It's sometimes called a commonplace book, where this guy who writes book reviews has just written down all the funny and amusing things he's read or heard in TV shows or movies or books over the last 30 years. And he just has written them down and he put it together. And he published it. I love it. So it's not like great quotes. It's actually kind of random quotes. But you can just pick it up, open it up to any page. You're not really reading it. Uh And he's got some like fabulously random quote in there. I am now going to open the book to a page, Rawi, that you can pick. And I will read one such quotation. Let the record note that Mihir has the book in front of him. And he's actually about to do this. Page 49. And you want to go middle, top... You just pick a part of the page and I'll do it. Mm, First one on page 49. First one on page 49, you got it. Okay. I loathe my belly, that trunk full of bowels, or else indigestion with a first installment of hot filth pouring out of me in a public toilet. (laughs) Wait, can I choose a different one? That's Vladimir Nabokov and the origin of Laura. (laughs) So it's pretty random, but wait. How about the second one instead? Oh, so this is in this is the scatological section of the book. It's James oh Joyce Ulysses. He tore away half the prize story sharply and wiped himself with it. Okay, so there's okay. other stuff in this book. Okay, um, <laughs> which is I'll just finish the third one on that page, which is all my good reading. You might say was done in the toilet. Henry Miller, Black Spring. Okay, so look, we happen to open up to like a weird scatological page, but it's like a lovely book. I will check it out. For I sure. think young me and Felix and Rebecca are going to be horrified by this little exchange. <laughs> all right. That was fun, Rowley. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for being here. All right. Thanks for listening. This is After Hours on the HBR Podcast Network. Okay. You picked for it. It's your fault, Rowley, as far as I'm concerned. It absolutely is. <laughs> and, you know, while the adults are away, Rowley, we can exactly. play. We didn't tell them to take the day off. Yeah, exactly. This is what you get. <laughs> You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. 
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. 